We're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter number two, and I'm going to read verses five through 11. And the title of my message today is The Greatest Gift, The Greatest Gift. And so we're going to start in verse five. It'll be up on the screen for you to follow along. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And consider the example that Jesus, the anointed one, has set before us. Let his mindset become your motivation. Uh, Let me pause here and say that what Paul is going to say from verses 6 through 11, uh, they're not just a description of what Jesus did for us, uh, but they should be read through the lens of verse 5 when Paul tells us that his mindset, Jesus's mindset, should be our motivation. It's not just, oh, Jesus is so amazing and he did all of this for me and that's so great. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's what Jesus did for me is absolutely amazing, but it should inform how I live my life and it requires that I do what it says. It requires that I follow Jesus's example. And so we need to read the rest of these verses through that lens, okay? So now, verse 6, it says this, He existed in the form of God, talking about, this is Paul talking about Jesus. He existed in the form of God, yet he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. Sometimes we gloss over verses like this, but this is absolutely, positively profound what Paul is telling us. The Apostle Paul is explaining to us in verse 6 that although Jesus existed from the beginning with God, and is God, he didn't use this privilege for his benefit. Okay, in other words, Jesus gave no thought to exploiting his privilege as God when he came to this earth, even though he could have. He refused to assert his benefits. He refused to assert his advantages. He he refused to assert his privileges and the power of being God while he was here on earth. Wow, that is amazing. That is incredible. Now, verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. He was a perfect example, even in his death, a criminal's death by crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God exalted him and multiplied his greatness. He has now been given the greatest of all names. The authority of the name of Jesus causes every knee to bow in reverence. Everything and everyone will one day submit to this name in the heavenly realm, in the earthly realm, and in the demonic realm. And every tongue will proclaim in every language, Jesus Christ is Lord Yahweh, bringing glory and honor to God, his Father. One of the main things that people generally think of when thinking of Christmas is the exchanging of gifts, right? The Christmas season can be a very stressful time for people because they're worried about how they're going to afford all of the gifts for everybody in their lives, all of their family, all of their friends, their co-workers, their, their church family, all of those things. And, and, and Christmas time can be a very stressful time because we're trying to figure out how we're going to stretch the dollar in order to be able to afford all of these things. People go, at, people go into major debt during the Christmas season so they can get everyone exactly what they want for Christmas. 
Some people spend an enormous amount of time picking out the perfect gifts for their loved ones. And I love gift giving during Christmas. I I love all of that. I love receiving gifts during Christmas. I love giving gifts during Christmas. I love all, I love surprises. I love the festivities. I love the traditions that my family has. And I've got to say, Priscilla is all about creating traditions in our family. Uh, The only tradition that I have created is that Sundays are for church and Sundays after church are for football. Okay, that's the tradition that I have implemented in my household. But all of the other family traditions Priscilla has instilled and she does a wonderful job of creating traditions around the Christmas season. Uh, One of our family traditions is that Priscilla will buy all of us in our family, me, Priscilla and my kids, she'll buy all of us new pajamas every Christmas. And so we wake up on Christmas Day, well, Christmas Eve, we put them on and we wake up with our new pajamas every Christmas morning. And that has become a tradition for us. Uh, uh, Now that we've moved to New York City, going to Macy's and seeing Santa uh, and and being a part of Santa Land and all of that stuff. And then after we see Santa, uh, everybody in our family we buy a Christmas ornament for the year. That, is an, that has become a family tradition for us. Opening up one gift on Christmas Eve has become a family tradition. So we open up one gift each on Christmas Eve, and then on Christmas morning, we open up the rest of the gifts. And I ain't going to lie. I enjoy all of our family traditions and the gift giving on Christmas Day. I love all of that stuff. But do you know what the greatest gift that's revealed in the Christmas story is? The greatest gift that puts all of the other gifts, no matter how big, no matter how meaningful, all of those other gifts to shame, the greatest gift that's revealed in the Christmas story is found in the passage that I just read to you. It's found in Philippians 2 and verse number 7. The greatest gift that's revealed through the Christmas story is that Jesus emptied himself. Is that Jesus emptied himself of his kingly God rights, stepped off of his throne, out of heaven, and became a human being. That is the greatest gift that you and I could ever receive, that the king of this universe, that the one that created everything, gave up, set aside, he didn't give it up, he set aside his God rights, his privileges, his advantages, his power, and he emptied himself of those things in order to come to this earth for you and for me. What exactly did Jesus empty himself of? Well, number one, he emptied himself of equality with God. He emptied himself of equality with God. He limited himself by submitting to the limitations of humanness. Number two, if we can put it up there, Jesus emptied himself of the spirit body that he lived in from eternity and he received a human body. Number three, he emptied himself of immortality of the body, which meant his human body had an expiration date on it. What did Jesus empty himself of? The glory he had with the Father before the world was. John 17, 5. That face-to-face connection, relationship with his Father that he enjoyed every day. He set that aside in order to come to the earth. Number five, the authority in heaven and in earth. He set that aside in order to come to this earth. And lastly, he emptied himself of his divine attributes and outward powers that he had with the Father from eternity. I don't know if you know this, but 
Jesus did not perform any miracles during his earthly ministry until he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he emptied himself of that in order to come to this earth. Because if he had, if he had performed all of those miracles because he was God, because of his deity, he would not have said that every believer would do the works that he did and even greater works. Because if what he did was because he was God, then you and I would not be able to do those things, right? And so he emptied himself for a time, came to this earth, and everything he did during his earthly ministry, he did because he had communion with the Father, he did what his Father told him, and he had the Holy Spirit in his life. That is amazing. Now, think about this. Even if Jesus was born into the most powerful, wealthy, prominent family on earth, that would be an absolute step down from being God, wouldn't it? He's God, right? But Jesus was not, even though, he, even though that was a step down, he was not born in this earth into the family of a king, but into the family of a carpenter. Not a family of wealth, but a family of modest means. As we approach Christmas Day, I want to share with you three truths about Christ's incarnation, which means when God became man, that I hope will carry you through the holidays. Number one, because Jesus stepped out of heaven and emptied himself, we can step out of sin. Amen? John 16, says, And everything I've taught you is so that the peace which is in me will be in you and will give you great confidence as you rest in me. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and sorrows, but you must be courageous, for I have conquered the world. Other translations say, for I have overcome the world. Philippians 2 and verse 8 says that he was a perfect example, even in death, a criminal's death by crucifixion. Jesus was our perfect example because he stepped onto this earth as a human and lived a sinless life. Okay? We, you and I, we are not required to live a sinless life as a qualification for our salvation because Jesus did. Think about that for a moment. Because let's be honest, if perfection were our requirement, none of us, None of us, regardless of how spiritual we are, regardless of how self-controlled we are, none of us would have a chance if perfection were the requirement. You know, we Americans, we don't understand what true freedom is because our idea of freedom is framed by what our uh, culture tells us freedom is, right? Even by what our history as a nation tells us that freedom is. That's what frames our idea of freedom. And that's why so many believers have trouble living out their Christian faith. Okay? We, because we're told that freedom is the right to do whatever I want. Right? That's what we're told freedom is. But do you know what biblical freedom is? Do you know what freedom means in Scripture? It means something radically different from what we're told that freedom is. Freedom in Scripture is not the right to do whatever I want, but the power to not do whatever I want. That was so profound and so good, I'm going to say that again. Biblical freedom is not the right 
to do whatever I want, but it's the power to not do whatever I want. Listen to Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Notice that Paul doesn't say it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, you have the right to do whatever you feel like doing. Paul does not explain that about the Christian, the believer's freedom. No, he says stand firm. Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm then and do not become enslaved again. That's what Paul says. Biblical freedom is the right to do whatever Jesus asks of me. That's what true biblical freedom is. True freedom comes from me crucifying my flesh and dying to self. That's where true freedom is found. Okay, let me illustrate it this way. True freedom is being able to forgive someone who has deeply hurt me and offended me and done me wrong. Right. What is our natural inclination when someone does our wrong and hurts us? Revenge. Right. Do whatever we feel. And we feel vengeful right now. We feel angry right now. So let's respond to that. But true freedom is not responding to the person that hurt us, offended us backstabbed us, did us wrong. It, true freedom is not responding to them the way they responded to us. True freedom is being free from what that person did to me. And that only comes from releasing that person from my life, from what they did to me by forgiveness. It only happens through forgiveness. Okay? That's what true freedom is. True freedom is being able to say no to pornography, even though my flesh, even though everything inside of me is screaming for it. True freedom is saying no to that, it not being mastered by that. True freedom is being able to live for Jesus regardless of what laws the government has put in place. Okay? Some people act like the government can dictate the impact of the church. Some people act like persecution of the church has actually stopped the church from fulfilling its purpose, right? Just read some church history and you'll understand. And even currently, if you'll, if, you, if you'll look at what's happening currently throughout history and even currently, the places where there's the most persecution tend to be the places where church growth is exploding. And the places where there's not persecution tend to be the places where the church is declining in number. Persecution has never stopped the church from growing. It's actually always, throughout history and even currently, it's fueled the church. You want to know where the church is exploding right now? It's exploding in China. You know how it exploded? Through underground church, because the government did not allow uh, people to have church above ground. And it's exploding there. You know where it's declining? Europe and America. The apostles in the first century were truly free, not because they could do whatever they wanted, but because they understood that freedom comes from Christ, not government. 
Okay? In Acts chapter 5, we're told that the apostles were thrown into prison because they were preaching the gospel. And we'll pick up the story in Acts chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. But during the night, the Lord sent an angel who appeared before them. He supernaturally opened their prison doors and brought the apostles outside. Verse 20, go, the angel told them, stand in the temple courts and preach the words that bring life. So early that morning, they entered the temple courts and taught the people. So let me get this straight. The apostles get thrown into prison okay, for preaching the gospel. While they're in prison, an angel sets them free and then commands them, go back and do the very thing that got you thrown in here. That, that's what's happening here. If that happened to me, I'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll go and preach again. But in another town where they didn't throw me in prison or let me wait until things calm down a little bit before I start preaching the gospel again. But the very next morning, the apostles go back to the temple and start preaching Jesus. They were able to do this because their freedom was not dependent upon what the government said, upon what the governing authority said. Jesus gave them their marching orders. Jesus gave them their marching orders. Contrary to popular belief, true freedom is not the right to sleep with as many women as I possibly can because it's my body, my life, my sexuality. That's not what true freedom is. In fact, there's a lot of people that have tried that that are in bondage and enslaved to all sorts of things today because of that. True freedom is the freedom to enjoy one woman the way God designed it in Scripture. Or, or, or if God has not led anybody to you, to enjoy celibacy with you and Jesus, to enjoy it. True freedom... Okay? is not to dress however I want, but to dress in a way that glorifies God and uplifts those around me. Okay? True freedom is to not be mastered by anything. It's to not be mastered by alcohol. It's to not be mastered by greed. It's to not be mastered by drugs. It's to not be mastered by what people think about me. That's what true freedom is. Biblical freedom is not being able to do whatever I want because it's my life and my rights. It's living by the Spirit because Jesus purchased me by His blood. And here's the truth. Doing whatever you feel and following your impulses is not true freedom because that will eventually cause you to fall into bondage. And true freedom is possible because Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into a fallen, broken humanity. Number two, because Jesus stepped out of heaven we can step into our destiny. Because Jesus stepped out of heaven, you and I, we can now step into our destiny. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Our purpose and destiny are birthed out of the birth of Jesus. Our destiny and purpose as believers is possible because Jesus emptied himself and stepped out of heaven and stepped into this earth. Jesus emptied himself and stepped out of heaven in order to step into our lives, step into our situation. When I was 17 years old, Jesus stepped into my life when I was a misled, confused, broken, hurting, 
insecure young man. Jesus stepped into my life. He gave me a future. He gave me hope. He gave me direction in my life. When I was a lost little puppy out there doing all sorts of things, I was involved in drugs, partying, uh, immoral relationships, all of those things because I was looking for, to fill something in my heart and, and I was trying all of these external things in order to fill that and it wasn't happening. And until Jesus stepped into my life, nothing changed, but Jesus stepped into my life because he first stepped out of heaven. Amen. And I know you, all of you that know Jesus today, you have a similar story. It might not sound just like mine, but you have your own story of when Jesus stepped into your life. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus stepped into your life because he stepped out of heaven. I preached last week that each one of us has a purpose and destiny for which we were put on this earth and I believe that with all of my heart. But sometimes I think we misunderstand what that means. We think that we were created and put on this earth for God to fulfill our deepest desires and our deepest pleasures. And, and that's, that's not the truth. And so because we have this faulty thinking of what our purpose and what our destiny and what God's role in our life is, we think God's going to give us that perfect job with the corner office, with the most understanding boss, with the greatest of co-workers, uh, and, and with us only doing what we absolutely love to do. And we have this ideal of what our purpose and destiny looks like. And can I be real with you? That idea of our purpose is found somewhere in fantasy land. So, some of you may have experienced that in life and, and have been very disillusioned by God, thinking, God, I thought you said you were going to do this in me, but I've experienced this. Well, maybe it's because of our faulty thinking, right? Our purpose and destiny primarily are to live for God's good pleasure. That's what we're put on this earth for. It, it's to bring pleasure and glory and honor to Jesus. And you can do that wherever you're at. You can do that whether you're sweeping floors every day or you're a CEO of a huge company, right? You can, you, you can bring glory and honor to Jesus whether you love what you're doing or hate what you're doing, right? Amen. Now, this is not a negative or oppressive or unfair thing because living this way will bring the most amount of joy to our lives, ultimately, right? Our destiny is to be a people centered around the kingdom that, the, that Jesus is king over, right? Our destiny is to be a people who love their enemies. Our destiny is to be a people who turn the other cheek. Our, our destiny is to be a people who walk the extra mile. Our destiny is to be a people who are good Samaritans in our apartment building, in our neighborhood, in our workplace. Our destiny is to, is to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. That is our destiny. That is our purpose. It's to bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus in and through our lives. Our destiny is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is our purpose. That is our destiny. And because Jesus stepped out of heaven, he established this eternal kingdom that we are all a part of. And number three, 
Because Jesus stepped out of heaven, we can step into community. Because Jesus stepped out of heaven, we can step into community. You know, Jesus stepped out of heaven and onto this earth, died and rose again to, number one, free us from sins, from our sin, and number two, to establish his church here on this earth. When we give our hearts to Jesus by faith, we are adopted, the Bible says, as sons and daughters into the family of God. We're, we're, we join a family, a community, a relational, uh, a, a relational body. That's what we join when we enter into the family of God. And we enter into this via relationship. Okay? The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to describe the church as a body. Why? Because the body needs all of its individual parts in order to function the way in which it was designed to function. If your body is to function uh, at an optimal level, it has to have all of its individual parts and systems working cohesively together in order for that to happen. Okay? So let me tell you three things that community is. And God, I want to just say this, God desires for us to do life together as a family. And I'm feeling as this year is ending and as 2019 is beginning, I'm feeling like this is the word that God is giving to our church in 2019. Something to do with family, something to do with community, something to do with relationships, okay? So let me tell you three things that community is. I'm going to discourage you a little bit, and then uh, I'll lift you back up. <laughs> Number one, community is inconvenient. Community is inconvenient. It is inconvenient when I'm walking on the street, okay, and my kids say I have to go to the bathroom. It is inconvenient, but I take them to the bathroom. Why? Because they're a part of my family, and I don't want them to pee all over the street, okay? Community is inconvenient. Convenient. There will be times when you have to go out of your way to have community. There will be times when you don't want to spend time with people, but you do it anyway. Okay? There will be times when you don't want to open up to anyone, but you do because genuine community, it takes transparency. And genuine transparency, being, being real, uh, admitting your faults, admitting your flaws, Man, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, you know, kind of bearing your heart to people and, and, and chancing them thinking differently of you. Man, that's a difficult thing to do. It's an inconvenient thing to do. It's much easier to just come to church on Sunday, look like you've got everything held together, and leave. But you're not building true community. You're not building true brothers and sisters that can stand with you. Because if I don't know what you're going through, you don't know what I'm going through, we can't have true community, right? That's why, uh, you know, in conversations, I, I, I'm transparent with people. There's times I stand up here publicly and I tell you what my family's going through. I don't like to do that, but we're a family. We're a community. We're in this thing together, amen? But there are times where doing these things, spending time with people, navigating through different personalities. Some people have personalities that are a little more annoying than others, and some people have personalities that are a little more needy than others, and we have all of these things. But managing all of those things, they, they can be inconvenient at times. 
But if we want community, and that's what God desires for us, we have to go through this. Number two, community takes commitment. Community takes commitment. It costs your time, it costs your anonymity, and it costs your love. There, there, there's a high price to pay for genuine, authentic, biblical community. And let me get super practical for a moment. If you want community within our church, just in the context of this church, you have to come to stuff, okay? And coming to stuff takes commitment because we're all busy. We all have a million things to do. We all want to sleep in. We all, want to, we all have all sorts of things that are going on in our lives. But if we want community, we have to come to stuff, okay? And not only do you have to come to stuff, you got to keep coming to stuff. you got to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming to stuff. And you have to organize stuff. And you got to invite people to stuff that you're organizing. Okay? And, and, and you, got, you can't just organize stuff. you got to keep organizing stuff. you got to keep getting people together. you got to get, keep getting people to come together. you got to continue this if we're going to have true community. Because here's what I know. People will come to prayer or game nights or Friday night lights for a while, and then they get busy or they get lazy, stop coming. Then all of a sudden they feel disconnected and complain that there's no community. This is the pattern I have seen over and over and over. As long as I've been involved in ministry, this is the pattern that I've seen. It might be that you have no commitment more than there's no com community. In order to have true community, you have to be committed to it. Community doesn't happen by good intentions. It doesn't happen by sappy feelings and emotions. It comes through commitment, following through with what you said. Building authentic friendships takes commitment. You must be committed to it because when you see something ugly or fleshly in someone in this church who, who you are building a relationship with, guess what's going to keep you going in that friendship? It's commitment. You might... <laughs> I might see something in you that I'm like, oh, snap, I didn't know that they did that. I didn't know they acted like that. You might see me acting a way towards my wife or towards my kids. I, I know some of you have. I, I, the, a couple weeks ago, Christian was at my house, and he saw me and my wife get into it a little bit. And you know what? Afterwards, I called Christian, and I apologized to him for talking to my wife like that in front of him. That's community. And it, and, it's, and it takes commitment to keep going. He might think, man, I can't believe my pastor acts like that. I can't believe my pastor's wife acts like that. I can't believe they both act like that. I love you, Pastor. I love you, too. But the thing that keeps relationships going is commitment. We're committed to this thing. We're committed to building this family. We're committed to, to building community within our church. That's the only thing because we're going to offend each other. I'm going to offend you. I already know it. You're going to offend me. You guys already have before. You know, I've offended you, I know. And the thing that keeps us going, the, keep, the thing that keeps us walking together, it's not good intentions. It's not good feelings. It's that C word called commitment that our culture hates. Right? And number three, and lastly, and if I could have the worship team come up, community is 
cooperative. Community is cooperative. And what I mean by this is that the word cooperative is defined as working or acting together willingly for a common purpose or benefit. Community, in other words, is a two-way street. Community is a two-way street. God desires TGP NYC to function within this two-way street. If we want our church to be more than an organization, then it's going to take effort from everyone involved. Everyone involved. It's not up to the leadership of the church to create a million connection opportunities for you to choose from. Okay? It takes you showing up, sharing ideas for connection, and then doing the work to make that happen. And then continuing to do the work. And continuing to do the work. And continuing to do the work. Because community takes commitment and cooperation. Jesus modeled community throughout his ministry, didn't he? If you read through the Gospels, Jesus modeled community to us. He spent time building relationships with his disciples. He confronted them. He encouraged them. And he ultimately died for them. And listen to what Jesus shares with his disciples during the Last Supper. These are his parting words to his disciples, to the, to, the, to the men who he was doing life with for three years, the men who he was most intimate with, the men that saw him perform miracles and saw the Pharisees just attack him. The, the, the man that, the, the, these are the men that saw Jesus bring dignity to the woman who, who was caught in adultery. These are the men that saw Jesus walk on water. These are the men that saw Jesus calm the storms as they were uh, freaked out. They thought they were going to die on that boat in the sea that day. These are the men that walked with Jesus when he turned the, the bread and the fish and multiplied it and fed 5,000 people. Actually, more than that, including the women and the children. These are the men that walked with Jesus. These are the men that, that woke up in the morning and, and Jesus wasn't there and they knew that he had slipped out in order to commune with his father early in the morning before any of them had woken up. These are the men that saw Jesus get some dirt, get some spit and make some mud and put it on a blind man's eyes, pray for him and saw the man's eyes open. These are the man, men that witnessed Jesus being slandered for what he preached and taught. These are the men that walked with him for three plus years. And listen to what Jesus shares with them at the Last Supper in John 13, starting with verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now... I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Man, that is powerful. That's all about community. Jesus could have mentioned anything when he said, by this, 
all will know that you are my disciples. But he picked the most powerful, the most profound, and the most difficult thing. To love one another as Jesus loved us. That means we prefer one another. That means we serve one another. That means we go out of our way for one another. That means we sacrifice for one another. And he said, if you do this, everybody will know that you are my disciples. We have these grand, grandiose evangel uh, evangelization strategies. And those, we need all of those things. But man, when you strip everything down, the greatest evangelism tool is to love one another, is to walk with one another in community and in relationship. This community that Jesus is inviting us to partake in is a selfless community. It takes us emptying ourselves of our ego and our pride and our selfishness in order to have this community that Jesus is inviting us to partake in. This community that Jesus is inviting us to partake in is what's going to set us apart. We, we can look to all sorts of other things that, that we want to do, that we want to accomplish, that, that, that's going to set us apart. But at the end of the day, community, living in community with one another, emptying ourselves the way Jesus emptied himself, that is what is going to set us apart. Amen? Let me pray.